It's real posting hours. Hello and welcome to the pod people. And it's a special day. It's our birthday. We are one year old today. I am your fresh-faced baby boy, Matisse Van Rossum. Goo-goo-gaga. Let me suck on them titties. (laughs) (laughs) Ben sheets. (laughs) (laughs) Glad we planned this beforehand. And today... We're here to suckle at John Carpenter's teat. (laughs) (laughs) And we're bringing you part one of a two-part, one-year spectacular on The Thing. We've made it a year. I can't believe it. We've had laughs. We've had arguments. I watched Megan is Missing. <laughs> it's been a hell of a year. We uh, all sat through Fear.com. We all sat through we Fear.com.com. We're still here. We didn't cancel the show after that, our second episode. <laughs> and, um, and God, that second episode had Megan is Missing and Fear.com. Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> Jesus fuck. Yeah, we made it a whole fucking year. Thank you to everybody who's been with us along the way. And uh, if we have any listeners who have not been here since the beginning, we hope that you'll be with us for our second birthday if we make it that far. Let's get into the, the meat, if you know what I mean. And today we're talking about one of the greatest horror films of all time, John Carpenter's 1982 classic, The Thing. And I hope you're ready to listen to us gush, because I cannot think of one bad thing I have to say about this movie. No, I mean, this is the closest thing to a perfect horror movie we have. Yeah, Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's such a fucking phenomenal film. Um, relatively early in John Carpenter's career as well. This is my favorite of all the John Carpenter films I've seen, and I've seen probably 75% of his filmography. I'm pretty sure I've seen all of his movies. Maybe not The Ward, but the last one. Oh, the last one he did. No, actually, I did see that one. It just sucked. So I remember the first time I watched this movie. It was... Late at night in my basement by myself with all the lights out. And I remember being genuinely terrified by this movie. And just in awe of how effective the horror and paranoia of this movie was. I remember being so floored by it that I immediately watched it a second time afterwards um and was still frightened the second time that's extremely high praise i can't remember the first time i watched this film i think i was maybe a senior in high school i got to it relatively late um but man i've gone back to this movie so many times and it's only improved on rewatches and Honestly, they don't make movies like this anymore. That's kind of a cliche thing to say, but it's true. There's nothing that I can think of that's been made in the last 
20, almost 30 years that has quite the punch of the thing. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, too, you know. Huh? Uh, yeah, ha. Huh? That's the um, thing. Because the reason why this movie is so successful is the studio had a lot of faith in John Carpenter. I'm pretty sure Escape from New York was pretty successful. Yeah, and um, I mean, Halloween, obviously, Halloween, was, yeah. was pretty successful. That was three years before this. Yeah, so they kind of gave Carpenter the uh, freedom to do what he wanted with it and have his own artistic vision with it. And I think the result is really incredible and something, like you said, we won't really get much of today. Um, and I think that's because there was such faith behind him. And the the funny thing is, when this movie was first released, it was pretty critically panned. Yeah, this um, did horribly when it came out, which is yeah. so surprising. A couple of the big reasons was because it was it's so such a bleak movie, and because it's so visceral in its horror. I think one critic called it like called John Carpenter a pornographer of uh, gore when this movie came out. Which I found funny because, uh, yes, the movie is very visceral and gory, but I find a lot of it restrained in its use. Like, it, yeah. it's well used without feeling overly it's excessive. Not, yeah, and it's not gratuitous. The, the The real gore and violence is isolated to select moments. Yeah, but it's evenly spread out throughout the movie to the point where the paranoia that intersperses them is so effective because of it. And I th I think even the minor scenes, like when they draw blood, for example, when they each one of them gets their finger cut, right. it feels so much more visceral and intense. Even though it's a scene that out of context would feel so mundane... Because it's between insane creature effects, it feels so much more intense. Right, and because you, at that point you're still reeling from the last really violent scene and you know that there's another one coming very shortly, but you know, you're know you in like the lull between them. And I don't use lull in like a negative sense, um, just sort of a, a quiet period and... It's still insanely tense, and you know that it's going to get batshit again soon, but you don't necessarily know when. I mean, this is, of course, on a first viewing, but um, back to the what you were saying about relatively little studio interference because they had faith in him. As far as I know, the only major studio interference in this movie is the opening shot. Well, I was actually, I just watched the commentary in prep for this this episode because, honestly, the commentary for this movie is pretty incredible. It's Carpenter and Kurt Russell just, you know, hanging out, drinking a beer, smoking, and talking about their experiences making the movie. Um, but John Carpenter says he still wanted the scene in there the whole time. It was just, he With wanted the, the scene before the the black uh, the white on black credits 
Oh, with and, the spaceship coming yeah, in? Yeah, he wanted that as like a cold open uh, and then credits and then the beginning of Interesting. the Interesting. And I instead, thought... it's... The credits, the credits immediately, and then, that. and then that, and then the movie. That's interesting. I I thought I remembered hearing that that was a scene that the studio shot without Carpenter's uh, say so, but that's that's interesting to me because if I did have to say one even tiny negative thing about the movie it's that that opening shot of the the alien spaceship flying to earth doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie as far as i'm concerned but it's it's such a a quick thing that you forget about so easily every time i watch this movie i'm always surprised by that opening shot because i've totally forgotten about it in between i do think it would be a little more effective if it did have that gap of the credits between that could be you know i think it would have given it a little more spacing but it's so minor that it doesn't even bother me really no it it has no lasting effect in comparison yeah. with the rest well of the and movie. that's the thing you know it doesn't over explain too much which i really appreciate um you get some backstory with the norwegian crew but it's all told secondhand you know, through tapes they find. Right. And they go to the Norwegian station and it's burnt down and they see... Find some you really know, horrifying stuff there. Yeah, yeah. And I like how, you know, that's kind of a theme throughout the movie. They never really over-explain stuff too much. When they do explain it, it's done in a way where one character may figure something out right and not everyone else knows and that's a narrative plot point. and considering the fact that these are people at a research installation in antarctica most of these people are scientists so it makes sense that they would be able to come to the few logical conclusions they do about this monster that allow them to uh, learn more about it in an attempt to try to fight it. It's not all given to you in one big exposition dump like you get in so many modern horror films. Uh, The example that I always think of is in uh, Sinister when Ethan Hawke uh, Skypes with that like demonologist or whatever (laughs) like oh yeah that's the symbol of bagul he's a demon that it's to children blah 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 and it's like you get all of this information about the antagonist in like one scene and then it's just like that's it whereas with something like the thing they're discovering more as they go and they're coming to logical conclusions for their characters it's not like in the predator like we talked about last week where they just have these epiphanies with no context behind them yeah well and that's the thing too you know cuz like you have for example wilford brimley who you know on his computer uh is simulating some of the biology of the thing. Which and I don't think is technology they probably would have had in 1982, but no, it's well, a sci-fi film. And they even mentioned that in the commentary. Uh, he, he mentioned like something that like they would never have this technology on a computer at the time, but now it just looks so archaic, right. you know? Um, but Wilfred Brimley, you know, simulates it and realizes that if, 
it continues to perfectly imitate humanity it will overtake the world you know right he he sees that if it makes it to the mainland if it gets off antarctica that the entire population of the planet will be infected within i think 27,000 hours something like that yeah um, and what i like about that is it's used as a narrative device for wilford brimley to start destroying the radio communications and the helicopter right and you know any method of escape so because at that point all of the other characters are still primarily concerned with getting help and getting out of this really horrifying situation that they found themselves in and wilford brimley is the first to realize that they cannot make contact with anybody else that they're all gonna go down with the ship because they have to, because the risk of this creature making it to civilization is far too high. I, I really like that when they do have exposition dumps like that, they use them as, as narrative devices. I think, Yeah, I wouldn't even call that an exposition dump. It is exposition, but it's necessary. Well, absolutely. And that's why it works so well. And that's at the same time where he sees that the computer predicts that the chance of somebody else at the station being infected already at this point is uh, 75% or higher, one or more people. So at that point, like Wilford Brimley is the, he's the first to know the scope of this thing. And that really kicks off that paranoia when he sort of goes crazy. And then they all start to realize that they can't trust each other. Yeah. Like the, the paranoia in this film is what makes it so tense that you as the audience and the characters don't know who is the thing. At any point. At any point, because it can replicate others so perfectly. And so you've got this fantastic dynamic of these characters wanting to survive and being forced to work together to do so. But even though they're having to work together, they cannot trust anybody. Like, Kurt Russell is, you know, like our protagonist. He's mostly our lens. But even at the uh, a point in the movie... Somebody finds uh, out in the snow a torn jacket that has R.J. McCready, his character's name, on it. And so then that casts doubt, well, if his jacket's out there in the cold, then maybe the thing got to him. Maybe he's one of them. I really like how they play with that. I like uh, the characterization of McCready a lot as well, because he's kind of this loner ex-soldier character almost right well he's one of the few who's not a scientist yeah. he's he's the helicopter pilot so he's more of the everyman in in this circumstance you yeah know? he clearly has his reasons for being in antarctica separated from civilization you know he seems to be kind of an alcoholic or at least a heavy drinker. Well, I mean, if you weren't a scientist and you were at uh, 
Antarctic Research Station in the middle of nowhere and it's just your job to fly people around the helicopter, like, I'd be drinking a shitload, too. Well, and yes, he's even, but he also he's, has his reasons for that, you know, sure. narratively. And I feel like... Well, implied reasons. Yes. None of the characters are given any backstory, and I think that that's actually great in in a film like this, is that it's like we're just plopped down with these characters, and they are. We learn about them through their interactions with each other and the things that they do, and we get to know them, but at no point is it like, oh, yeah, I was in Vietnam, and I saw my brothers get killed by the gooks, or any shit like that. It's like, no, it's not important. You you get to know these people through spending time with them. Yeah. You and know, just like you would with people in an actual interaction. Well, and they, they have such deep characterization. It's obvious that every actor was really passionate about making their each of their characters multidimensional in the movie. That none of them feel like caricatures. No. They all feel like complex characters with their own reasons to be there and their they own all, motivations. They all feel like real people, and even though some of them are more integral to the plot than others, nobody in this movie feels like a throwaway character. Well, and that's the thing, too, you know, even when You could there's... maybe argue the Norwegians at the beginning who don't have any lines because they're just shooting at the, the dog and then they get killed— but none of our central cast of characters. You could even say that, you know, like, because the characters are so humanistic and complex, you know, whereas in more basic action horror movies, you would have a sort of, you know, tough leader who, who you know, tells everyone what to do. You don't quite have that in the same way with this movie. Like, McCready is the main character in a lot of ways in this movie, but even he doesn't really want to be the leader. Right. At and... a point, at a certain point, he forcibly takes charge, but it's just because he doesn't know who he can trust, and he's in the position of power where he can do it's that. It's one of the things where it's more out of necessity than exactly. out of, you know, he her heroism or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, you have the one character who's somewhat in charge for a little while because he's, like, the, the research leader or whatever. But even then, at a certain point... Like when they find uh, all of the bags of blood in the infirmary uh, pierced and drained when they think that he might have done it. He even says, like, you guys obviously aren't comfortable with me being in charge, so I nominate so-and-so to be in charge in my place. And that dude's like, well, shit, I can't do it. I don't want to do that at all. And so then there is no leader until they you know, try to capture McCready because they think he's the thing and he sort of takes charge. He's like, if you fucking come near me, I'm going to light this dynamite and blow us all to shit, you know? So like you said, it's like he doesn't want to be in charge, but he's first and foremost looking out for his own survival, just like all of them are. And so in order to survive, he has to take charge. Yeah, and I, I, I think that nuanced way they do it is so effective with the paranoia built throughout the film um, because they feel real and there's no clear-cut hero. Um, they're all just trying 
to survive and make sure the finger isn't pointed at them. Right. Um, which is so perfect for the themes of the film. What I like a lot, too, is uh, when it comes to McCready, yeah, there's that doubt about who he really is when they find his jacket, but when he threatens to blow them all up, including himself, that's kind of an indication for the audience that he is not the thing without having a scene that explicitly tells us such because obviously the thing's goal is to escape and get to civilization and reproduce and take over the world so why would it so vehemently threaten to destroy itself along with everybody else and like obviously the rest of the people on the base still don't trust him so they still don't know whether McCready is real or not, but that's uh, uh, an indication to the audience without explaining it, and that's one of those things that I think is so clever, because you as the audience know, at that point, there's no way that McCready is infected. Yeah. Like, he is still human. Here's a question. If someone in the world of this movie was the thing, would they know that they were the thing? Yeah, definitely. You think so? I do. I think the thing so perfectly imitates humans that it only has that when it, you know, transforms. Nah, dude, it's calculated. If you look at most of the attacks in the movie, even from the first one, because obviously the, the dog from the Norwegian research station is the first incarnation of the thing in this movie, and the dog does nothing until it's alone with the other dogs. The, uh, it, until it transforms. Right, but it doesn't transform until it is the most opportune moment for it. Just like when it's the... Uh, I I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy who has the heart attack... My, my, my point was less that it's, it's happening and more that the uh, brain, I guess, is affected by it. If it's a a choice or kind of a biological response no i i think it's i think it's a choice because it came to this planet on a spaceship and not a meteor it is an intelligent being its species has technology it has a fucking spaceship right so it is obviously sentient and motivated by a desire and a cause it's not you know totally random i don't think that when the thing takes over somebody it's lying dormant in them i think that it kills them and perfectly imitates them i i because i do think that it's it's transformations and it's moments of attack are calculated and also we see towards the end of the movie when it's indeed shown that wilford brimley has been taken over like he's actively working against the other people he attacks the one guy who's off on his own and does that really great gross effect where he like sticks his fingers like under the skin of his face and it's been building a miniature spaceship under 
the cabin where they had Wilford Brimley locked. Like it's it's a calculating organism, I think for sure. I I don't think it's it's uh, something that randomly happens. I don't think it's a thing where people don't know whether they're infected. Like when they are infected, they are no longer people. They are the thing. Yes, I I would agree with that. I think. It's since it is a perfect imitation, unless the transformation is occurring, no one else would know. And but it they knows. wouldn't necessarily make coordinated effort to keep other people from discovering. No, but it is it is about self preservation. Yes, That's, you see that throughout the film. Right, which is which is why I think that works so well when McCready threatens to kill all of them, himself included, because that's not about self-preservation. That's like, if I'm going to go down, I'm taking all of you with me. And that's not like the thing would do anything to draw attention away from itself so it can get away. I think that that's that is a, an important distinction, and I think that that's really clever that they chose to do it that way in the film. So there's not like a scene of somebody else going into McCready's hut and taking his jacket and tearing it up and throwing it outside, but it's like the other characters don't know for sure because they're terrified and their lives are in danger. But we as the audience know at that point, okay, McCready is still human. He is our protagonist. Yeah, well, I would agree with that. I, the The reason I asked is they mentioned that in the commentary that on set they would constantly have this point of debate, whereas to what extent do are the characters cognizant of whether they are the thing or not you know why i think they did that and correct me if i'm wrong because i haven't seen the commentary so if they explain that my theory could be totally gone but the reason that i think they would take that approach in terms of the filming is because if a if an actor doesn't know that their character is the thing, they are going to play their character like a real human being therefore it goes along with the perfect imitation of what it's copying because if an actor knows like okay i'm the thing then maybe something in their performance would reveal that maybe they would subconsciously behave more sinisterly so to keep that from the actors ensures a more perfect human imitation well yes i i that is very valid. I think they were also talking about, you know, to what extent of an imitation entails. Um, because how perfect of an imitation is an imitation uh, if it's thinking differently. Um, and where is that line? It's a very uh, vague type of philosophical debate. Um, but it's, it, it's an interesting one nonetheless. I, I, um, yeah, I know I can totally see that. Maybe this is getting a little bit semantic and I won't stay on this for too long, but I think there's a key distinction in the word itself, imitation. I think that an imitation implies awareness of itself, 
if you're trying to, you know, whether it's with something you're creating or somebody you're trying to be, if there is, you know, an, an actual imitation, there is thought behind it. And there's an effort to make it seem as seamless from what it's imitating. It's tricky, though, because yeah. since the thing is a biological thing, a and, lot of that would be a natural imitation. And if it's a natural imitation, how much self-awareness is there versus it being... Or how much cognizance is there versus it being a biological thing? No, and I suppose... No, that's it, that's definitely it true. In, it gets into, like, hairy territory. No, I, but I, I think, I think you're nonetheless, right. like, it's an in, it's interesting thing to ponder, and I think it hits on the key, you know, themes of the movie with all the paranoia and the uncertainty of who to trust and what to believe at any point. I think something else to think about with that um, is the scene where McCready ties everybody down and does his blood test, where he takes a sample of everybody's blood in a Petri dish, heats up a copper wire, and puts it into the blood to see if it reacts, because as he says, every piece of this organism is its own thinking well organism i guess and that so if it's threatened at all that it will react but when he draws you'd think by that logic when he draws blood from the people that the person who is the thing will react violently when its thumb is cut to take the blood so what i would argue is that when it's all part of the singular organism it's driven under one will therefore it can know not to react when its finger is cut but when the blood is separated from it it becomes its own thing and therefore when he sticks the hot wire into the dish and the blood splurts up and oh they know that so and so is the thing that that is at that point a separate organism yeah well and that's the other thing i love about the the concept is since it is this extraterrestrial life form it is inherently kind of beyond our understanding you it's can't a- put it into simple it's alien you know it's the literal definition boxes, of alien yeah. you know and you see that throughout the film as it takes so many different esoteric forms that's the other great part about the creature in this movie is it takes so many different forms, you know, influenced by the past planets it's been to, from the past people it's taken, even by the its dogs. Own, and- yeah, I think it's just its own chaotic nature. If it's a creature that is physically capable of assuming any form, why would it not assume every form yeah you know there's there's nothing it's it's one of those things and what i love so much about this creature is that who the fuck knows what its original form even is what do these creatures start out as you know it can be assumed that they've been going throughout the galaxy 
absorbing every planet they come in contact with. So what is it actually? And that's what make part of what makes it so horrifying is that it is truly alien in a different way than the xenomorph in Ridley Scott's alien, which I also think is very or very well fits that that definition of alien but those are the type of to take a slight segue those are the type of like sci-fi alien movies that i love so much when the the creature is truly alien and it seems to be something that is not often utilized properly in science fiction. Most of the time, aliens are something that is semi-recognizable to us, you know? But I I feel like we had this conversation when we were talking about Annihilation, too, where the creature is something truly incomprehensible. And I think that that makes for really, really great horror. Something that H.P. Lovecraft did so well. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, you know, it's very Lovecraft-esque in that it's a horror beyond human understanding, um, which I think this movie does pretty incredibly well. Which I think is something um, that, even in real life, is always truly horrifying. When we come across something that we cannot understand... You know, trying as a very logical species, for the most part, you know, trying to answer things with science and with knowledge. If you come across something that you cannot understand and that you cannot explain, that's fucking scary. And that's what motivated Lovecraft, you know, a hundred years ago to do the same thing. And we've come a long way since Lovecraft, but he still does such a great job of finding a way to explain the inexplainable in a way that leaves it up to you as the as the viewer you know fucking weird maga chud that he was uh, as a person like that dude knew how to fucking scare people and i think his shit is still scary even today yeah well ultimately i think it's not being able to rationalize the irrational and realizing that the universe is truly chaos is like the core of all this horse chaos reigns which is which is really great and uh really an awesome theme uh for horror because i think it's kind of an innate feeling in all of us deep down Um, we're terrified of what we can't explain yeah exactly well i want to go back a little bit to the creatures a little bit more and specifically talk about the practical effects work yes because it is one of the highlights of the movie i think it was rob batine uh did all the practical effects um what's fucking insane to me is that when they were making this movie he was like 23 yeah jesus he like this film, even now in 2018, like the effects hold up so fucking well. And to have been able to do that shit when you are, 
younger than we are, it, it's fucking baffling. Yeah. And it, it's the kind of shit, and it's not the only thing, but it's the kind of shit that makes me think on a regular basis, what the fuck am I doing with my life? <laughs> that people younger than me are able to do shit like this, you know? Some of the puppets are just crazy elaborate. Well, obviously, there's the most famous, you know, chest cavity monster, which uh, was several people working on it at the same time, making sure, you know, it looked realistic, and it sure does. It does. Um, I think the the character, the actor who played the character who had his chest burst, had to sit there for like eight hours as makeup and prosthetics were working on that, which is I would insane. do it. Just have somebody next to me every few minutes pour a little bit of booze in my mouth. Like I'll just lay there, get drunk, let them fucking take a cast of my body. Yeah, well, the crazy thing, too, is while this movie was shot on a soundstage, a lot of it, um, in the non-outdoor stuff, the outdoor stuff they shot in like Canada and Juneau, Alaska, places where they have a lot of snow Shit and stuff. Snow. But that being said, even on the studio sets, they had the temperature dialed down to like extremely cold, like Good. 31 degrees. So I'm sure even when... He was sitting there, you know, it was still kind of rough. Yeah, yeah. It was probably so, really cold. I I salute him, man. Yeah. Props. Dude, um, this this movie is always my number one argument for practical effects over CG, which is something that I know I talk about a lot, especially in horror films, but anytime I have a conversation with anybody and get into the argument of why practical effects are better than CG, this is the first film I mention, always. Because, call it dated if you want, but I don't even think it's dated. There is absolutely something to be said for having something that is real and that is actually in the room for the actors to react to, and for us to see that CG just can never stand up to. Well, the other thing is having that physicality of it. You know, like sometimes, you know, the actors are still not directly responding to stuff. There's shots in this, for example, like the, the dog scene where they're not in the same room. But the reason it works so well is... The practical effects are physical effects, right. so they look real, so when they're responded to, it looks like they're responding to something in the same room. Right. It looks like it's actually there in front of them, rather than it being this thing that deep down you know is just off of a computer. Right, exactly. Like, even though, yes, CG is very good now and can create relatively seamless effects, you as a human being still know that it's CG. 
it has not reached the point where it can perfectly replicate practical effects. Like it might look very good, but you know it's computer generated graphics, you know? Whereas with practical effects, whether it's puppets or uh, you know, stop motion or matte paintings or whatever, you know, it's something physical. It feels real. And even in the the couple of shots in this movie where the puppetry might look a little little dated like in the dog scene where like the arms come out and like punch through the ceiling and like lift its body up like the the punching arms look a little dumb but like it still feels so real like you can imagine being in the room with it and you know that it's you know something physical you can absolutely tell the difference well and, and that's that's an effect that cg just cannot create there's no better example of that than a couple shots before that when the dog's head opens up like a fucking flower yeah, yeah and you get that gory skeleton and tongue coming out and that's a shot that would feel flat and not have the effectiveness if it was CG. Because the idea that you can make anything with computer-generated imagery... It feels cheap, kind of. In a way, yes. Because you can... Not not cheap in terms of actual budget, but just cheap in terms of, yeah, I got this computer, I can do whatever the fuck I want. It's like, okay, but... Show me something that people like worked on, you know. And uh, okay, that that sounds kind of shitty. Yeah, that sounds I, like I, that I sounds like people. That, that sounds think, like people who do CG don't work, and I, they don't. I think try I think hard, there but, have been great examples of CG. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think especially in the context of horror, I retract the there, way that there, sounded. There's a phys- I'm not talking <laughs> down on CG artists. Like if you're a CG artist, like I respect There's your job. There's a physicality you do a lot of work. to practical effects which make it them feel more visceral because deep down we understand materiality. Yeah. And even as far as CG has progressed, it hasn't quite perfected materiality. Right. Yes. No, um, no, no. To that, the point that's a, where that's a much better way to say yeah, what I was trying to say. Where uh lighting uh can be imperfect even though i think lighting has even progressed pretty far right but that is but that is a thing like when you're doing cg you have to match the lighting of what you're doing cg on whereas if you build a practical effect that shit is just lit you know because it's in the room well for the most part sometimes you know you for example with the fake dog uh you know they lit it kind of dark so they could emphasize, you know, the unknowable aspect. Right, but the of- but my point is that the prop was in the room and they lit the prop, and it wasn't somebody on a computer creating something digitally and then having to light the their digital recreation the exact same way as yeah, the room to match to the- match the room that it's supposed to yeah. be in. No, no, no. That's that was that was my only point with that. There's definitely something to be said for the fact that a squib is pretty much always going to look better than 
uh, uh, an After Effects blood splatter. You know, like there is there is that sense of physicality to it that your brain will still recognize subconsciously. Like you said, CG has not yet reached the point of perfectly matching physicality. You can tell CG when it's CG. You know that Thanos is just Josh Brolin in a mocap suit, you know, uh, Granted, there are times where it comes pretty goddamn close. For example, fucking Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. I will say The Lord of the Rings trilogy is maybe one of the best somewhat modern examples of proper use of CG in combination with practical effects. And, and I, those and those movies are almost 20 goddamn years old. My, and that's insane. My big defense of CG is in progressing methods that are kind of dated with practical technology. For example, one great example of that is compositing. Uh, before yeah. we had advanced compositing technology, they used things like matte paintings and miniatures, where, you know, if you do it well, it can look good, but it's easy for them to look corny or cheap. Whereas with advanced compositing, you can take actual different spaces and put them within other spaces and make it look real. One great example of that is in The Wolf of Wall Street, where they do it a ton to make this huge budget thing with not as much money as you would expect. Sure, you know? but I my argument with that would be just like with matte painting and miniatures the CG compositing has to be done well, too. Like, it's definitely a quality thing. I will argue uh, with the movie we talked about a couple months ago, Winchester, the Winchester house. That shit, if they had done it with a miniature, would have looked much better than the FMV video game aesthetic that they decided <laughs> to go with Maybe if they didn't use the same two shots over and over again. Well, see, the shots of the roof were probably miniatures, but the exteriors was just really bad CG. So, you know, it's, it's a quality quality thing uh i don't want to divert on that tangent too much well yeah there's still artifice and you know process to the technique but i think cg advances that in advances the limits of potential to for that. sure and um, cg is is getting better and better yeah. you know and we're moving closer to the point where it will eventually become CG. Yeah, I just wanted to make that minor point of defense of CG because I think, especially with creature effects and horror, like practical effects are obviously the way to go. I'm not, that's not to say C I'm not against CG. Yeah, that's not to say CG doesn't have its place. No, for sure. I'm I'm not against CG. I'm really not. But there is something to be said for knowing when to use CG and when to use practicals. And we're in the age where a lot of that decision is determined by uh, laziness and cheapness, one way or the other. So it's it's a mixed bag. Yeah. But I think that that is a good segue into something that you and I were talking about when we watched this movie in regards to seeing the creature and how it's different from a lot of horror films 
in terms of the timing of showing the creature. In a lot of instances, it's generally preferable to not show much of the creature early on and save your reveal for later. But in this movie, they show it pretty early, within the first 30 minutes. And the reason that this works so well in this movie is because that the creature has no single defined form. They can get away with showing a lot early on because you're not going to see that creature in the same state later. It's not blowing their load too soon. Yeah, in a way, it's both the opposite of Jaws in that it shows the creature right away and then keeps showing it while at the same time being somewhat similar because like Jaws, you only see features of it and you never see the whole but in the thing it's because there is no true there's no there's no true definable whole it never it never appears in the same incarnation twice so it's like showing multiple different creatures but it's all technically the same organism yeah it kind of falls into that horror of the mind which i think is so effective in and it kind of goes back to that Lovecraft stuff. It's that unknowable. And I think horror that emphasizes stuff like that is so limitless in its potential. And a lot of times you get the most creative stuff out of that. Um, a, another great example of that is Nightmare on Elm Street. Because, you right. know, Freddy Krueger is haunting dreams. Anything can happen. And because of that... You're always on your toes because you never know what to expect. Well, we even see that in something like It Follows, a much more recent example, where it's not to the same extent as The Thing or Nightmare on Elm Street, but the creature can be anybody, you know? So they're not afraid to show it early on because it is never the same twice. It It is constantly changing, and... That's also part of what makes it scary, because as soon as you think you start to know it, it does something else. It is constantly unknowable, and that is extremely important to this kind of horror. Whereas you look at something like Alien, where they're restrained use of showing the xenomorph works really well because you never get a good idea of what it is even though it is the same but with something like the thing you can keep showing us all of these different things and it doesn't get old because it's never the same exactly and i think it's really really effective um especially in this movie Um, Another thing I wanted to talk about with this movie is the score. Unlike most John Carpenter movies where John Carpenter himself does the score, the score was done by Ennio Morricone. Which is weird because it doesn't sound like Ennio Morricone at all. Yeah, it's very minimal. It's full orchestration, but a lot of times you wouldn't be able to tell because it is very minimal and... Uh, very fitting for, you know, the Antarctic 
location. Well, I mean, the, it's very the, sparse. the iconic theme, much like Jaws, is extremely simple. It's the same note. That's it. It's one single note that manages to be an incredibly iconic horror theme. It's just dun-dun, dun-dun. Just and but it works so fucking well. Like, yeah, it's so sparse and it fits the uh, Arctic theme uh, because it's so so cold in a lot of ways and, and the, it's sinister yeah, too. The, it's the very two sinister. notes is like imitation themed kind yeah. of. It it's great. It's perfect. It's so it's no, so it, fitting. For, it works on so movie. many levels for being so simplistic. And I I wonder how much of it was Ennio Morricone actually composing stuff and how much was John Carpenter, like, giving him his doodles and being like, you know, here's some stuff I came up with. Do what you want with this. Because, I mean, even though it isn't Ennio Morricone's score, it doesn't feel out of place in John Carpenter's other scores, you know? No, it fits the ethos of his music where it's, you know, very simple and minimal um, in a lot of ways, very singular melody heavy. Doesn't get too flashy at any point. And yeah, it's unintrusive. Um, I don't know if that was, you know, him giving notes to Morricone or Morricone just watching... John Carpenter's past films and being influenced by that. Um, but there was some sort of pull from that, I'm sure, because it does feel, you know, very in tune with the rest of John Carpenter's work, um, which I really appreciated. It's almost like Ennio Morricone wasn't even a part of this. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, that sounds weird to say, but it's like you look at his other really iconic scores and like this is just so out of place but um i think the simplicity is uh, a good jumping off point for i think overall what makes this film so incredible and part of why they don't make movies like this anymore something else that you and i were talking about i think all of the best examples of truly amazing horror films are when you cut them down to their core extremely simple it's simplicity you make bad horror when you start to convolute it too much yeah well i mean at its core this movie is like a hitchcock murder mystery in a way you know you have you have that paranoia of not knowing who is the the culprit <laughs> you know that's 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 an ethos that we've seen you know in Hitchcock and Agatha Christie and right. all these different things it's just taken and you know injected into this horror setting of paranoia and because of that it it works so well it's such a universal idea right. it's low concept but in the current state of filmmaking, it would be called high concept. Yeah. Because, you know, it's such a simple because idea. Because simplicity is high concept in the world that we live yeah. in. Yeah. 
Which is, but I mean, if you look at all of the the greatest classic horror films, they all share that simplicity. The thing is about a group of researchers stuck in a remote location with a horrifying alien monster that can perfectly replicate people. Alien is about blue collar workers in the future on a cargo ship and there's an alien on the ship with them that's trying to kill them the original texas chainsaw massacre some teenagers their car breaks down they find a house where a crazy cannibal family lives that kills them night of the living dead there's some zombies some people are trapped in a house just trying to survive the night it's all that fucking simplicity and it's not simplicity on a level of stupidity because that the simplicity in terms of the plot leaves all of this room for characters to be developed for you to include atmosphere for paranoia and tension to really fill the void you know as, as soon as you ha- as soon as you make your audience start thinking too much about what's happening you lose the core of the story that you're trying to tell well yeah and the thing is you know the most effective horror in my opinion is kind of a horror of the gut right exactly so it's instinctual so it's that thing where it shouldn't be a plot to find figure out the narrative or understand the narrative the narrative should be a primal understanding right and that way instead of having to focus on trying to follow the story people can be directed directly influenced by what is going on yes and it's that kind of sort of instinctual connection to it that is what takes a good horror movie to a great horror movie in my opinion absolutely because if you are not scared enough to be thinking too much then it's not doing its job because fear is not an emotion that involves a lot of thought. It's extremely primal. It's visceral. You are afraid. If you start involving your higher levels of thinking too much, then it's not real fear. Yeah. And I think there's only a few effective horror movies that do get complicated and really complex in the story but i think the ones that are effective that do that is where you know the confusion of the characters match the the own viewers confusion um or you know kind of mental uncertainty well right because confusion is a big part of fear as well but you shouldn't you shouldn't get lost in trying to find the the coherent plot in something your confusion should be confusion about the unknown and what the fuck is going on there's no problem with not understanding what's happening if that is the intention if what is happening is far beyond your comprehension because that's part of what makes it scary but you know that's something that you very very rarely see in modern horror anymore it happens sometimes it does there are great examples of good modern horror 
But for the most part, that simplicity that the thing has is lost. But that's what still makes the thing such an incredible movie. Because like I said earlier, all of the characters are still developed, but indirectly so. You learn about them from spending time with them, even the ones that don't have many lines, because you're not lost trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Yeah. With uh, Unlike something like Slender Man, where there's no room for character development because it's just so fucking confusing. Yeah. You're just trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. What am I supposed to be scared um, of? What's fucking happening? When you have that like clear-cut, basic premise, there's so much room for that tension and horror to develop. Well, like we were saying, you know, the thing is such a simple premise, and I think at its core, it's such... It, the thing is so timeless because it's such a universal premise of horror in that it's kind of the fear of the other um, and the fear of the unknown. And I think throughout time, that's always been a sense of, uh, you know, a sense of horror to people. And I think it, it's kind of interesting to look at this movie in the context of when it was released because it came out in 82 right around the time the AIDS epidemic was starting up. And in a very similar manner, it was a lot of unknown. It was a lot of unknown in how it spread and how you got it. And how how you can't recognize somebody who who has has it it just by looking at them. You have to test the blood, which is a direct reference, you know, in this movie. That's one example of, you know, a kind of broader horror that's really timeless. Well, I mean, we also, like, see a lot of the fear of the unknown in a lot of horror films that spanned the many years of the Cold War, which in and of itself was fully half of film history well, in and general. Yeah, we but... also should mention this movie was a remake of a movie from the Cold War era. Yeah, which the thing was... from Another World, the Howard Hawks film, which both were based on a short story um, called Who Goes There that was written not much before... Uh, the the thing from another world came out as far as i know so peak cold war era stuff right um, it's the same the same shit that like invasion of the body snatchers is all about the cold war cuz you don't know who might be one of the pod people you know who's a fucking commie and who's not so it, it's really interesting to see that like the the amazing wonderful thing about horror as a genre is there's no better way to study a specific period in time than by looking at what people during that time were afraid of you know <laughs> and horror is in that sense such a mirror of the era that it's made in and you know, I can I can going way back to where you're talking about in terms of the gore, I can even see why the gore of this film was still sort of unpalatable to people cuz I mean it came out in in 82, you know, 
less than 10 years after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was one of the first truly gory films by that standard, when a lot of people still were not used to seeing this much blood and viscera on screen, you know? And that shit freaked people out back then or was considered pornography and senseless violence. And it's funny to look at the thing in that context, considering how desensitized we are to that shit now, but at the same time, how effective it still is in a movie like this, you know? Yeah, because it it ultimately is still restrained, like we were saying earlier, you know? It gets very visceral, but it doesn't overplay its hand. You see a lot of horror movies, and once the blood starts flowing, it doesn't stop until the end. Whereas with this one, it's at very key moments. And in between those moments of violence and gross-out horror, there's nothing but tension and paranoia and speculation who is the creature who is not who is trustworthy who isn't it almost works as like a pin at the back of your seat every time you you know are lulled into sitting back you're you're pricked and go back to the edge of your seat you know there's no there's no real comfort in watching this movie ever even from the beginning you know cuz it starts out with this norwegian helicopter chasing this dog and shooting at it and throwing grenades at it and you're you're unsettled from the beginning you don't know what the fuck is happening and so this is not uh, a cozy movie by any means and i think that's something that people were not really used to at that time they were used to having at least a little bit of comfort in their movies even their scary movies but it's just not here one thing i do want to talk about is the one clue that John Carpenter and the filmmakers supposedly left us throughout this movie as to who is the thing and who isn't the way to tell. And uh, since I learned about this, I've always looked for it. And it seems to it seems to hold up as a theory. I don't know if they talk about it all in the commentary. Do you do they? Uh, you can go ahead and I'll talk a little bit. OK, sure. After. So this is the I light theory. You know, in in standard filmmaking practices, it is uh, sort of the norm to have an eye light uh, off camera, something that reflects in the actor's eyes to give them that sort of twinkle that we associate with life and humanity, and that in the thing, you can tell who is the creature because they do not have an eye light, and their eyes are dark and cold and do not have that sparkle. There's been a lot of theories on how to tell um, a great example is right at the end when uh, McCready and uh, uh, what's and Childs, Childs are, Keith uh, David, yeah. the amazing Keith David. Yeah, and Childs are drinking and kind of reeling after everything has gone down. And after there's, they there's a big the theory about, thing, yeah. you know, seeing their breath and that, you know, 
being a, an indicator or the eye light theory. There's a lot of theories on. You well, know, you can definitely see both of their breath in that last yeah. scene. Yeah, you, a, a, a couple of times. There's, both of there's them. a lot of theories on indicators in the movie, but even in the commentary at the end, Kurt Russell was like, "The only thing we know is." Uh, McCready is definitely not the thing, right? And John Carpenter is like, I don't know, maybe he is. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. it's it's subtle, but both of them do have the eye light in that scene. Yeah. I I always like to think that they are both human. It's still a very bleak ending because their base is blown up. Nobody's coming to help them. They're more than a thousand miles from the coast. Like they're not going to get out of this. Well, they're, yeah, the whole they third are, act is like a suicide. Mission, they are. They are for sure. They're for sure both going to die. But I do always like to think that they have at least prevented the thing from getting to the coast and that they are both still human i do like that there's ultimately an uncertainty for sure well i i love that uh as he's passing the whiskey bottle to keith david kurt russell says if either of us have any surprises for each other, there's not much we can do about it at this point. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's like they're both so defeated. They both just want to rest. They know that death is imminent, but like, fuck it. Let's just finish this bottle of McKellen's and fucking live out our last few hours here. Apparently that final scene was mostly Kurt Russell's idea. It's great. Yeah. I love I love how the, bleak it the, is. The, all of the dialogue at the end was written by Kurt Russell. The ending was very up in the air until about the ending of production. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, for a while they were thinking, the studio wanted Kurt Russell by himself, which didn't really play well. Um, at one point, they were thinking of having a helicopter come down no, while terrible. they were sitting there, which is a, not a good idea. Oh, no, <laughs> and it's John not. Carpenter even agreed with that. I, I love, um, I love that there's yeah. that there's the both of them. Yeah. That it's not there's just one survivor and there's two of them, and that they still don't really know yeah. if one or the other might be infected. Yeah. But like Kurt Russell says, there's nothing they can really do about it at this point. John Carpenter said something about there being an idea of them both burning each other at the end, but no, I like the uncertainty. You gotta have that uncertainty, and I love the that's the perfect way to end their narrative arc. It would have cheapened it so much if they just both killed each other at the end. You yeah, know? I know. I it would have wrapped agree. it up a little too cleanly. Whether whether it's true or not, I do like holding to the eye light theory because it does seem pretty solid the last couple of times i've watched the movie i've checked for it knowing who is the thing you know at any given time and it it stands up like the thing the, i love about that the people who are the thing don't have a, the eyelight it goes full circle into that idea of rationalizing the irrational in the movie yeah absolutely and it so perfectly sums up the kind of ethos of why the horror in this movie works. Um, and it's just a perfect 
summation. Yeah, I, so. I no, I totally agree, and I don't even care that I'm playing into it. You know, I'm a human being. Of course, I'm going to try to rationalize the irrational. So you know, like it I just said, shows whether that it's, it's effective, whether honestly. it's true or not, it's effective. You know, you can if you haven't heard that and you watch the thing next time, look for that eye light. You know, it's uh in in several very key scenes it's not there and it's uh it's a cool thing to to think about and man this movie does so much fucking right do you want to write this i mean i don't even know if we have to i, I think it's we're both i think it's give pretty obvious yeah right? like i no we can go ahead and say this is a <laughs> this is a unanimous 5 out of 5 stars i have no qualms with this movie even that kind of silly opening shot aside it's so inconsequential in the grand scheme of things like this is a a fucking perfect horror film and uh if for some reason you're a horror fan and you have not seen the thing oh my god go watch it like immediately immediately like, as soon as you're done with this, go watch The Thing, because you will not fucking regret it. Yeah, like, turn your air conditioning up high. Turn Make it all the lights cold. off. Yeah. Watch it late at night. It's key, honestly. Yeah. Absolutely watch it, though. Yeah, it's, uh, no, it, it's perfect. Uh, one of the, one of the few truly perfect horror films in the canon in my opinion and i'm so happy we finally got an excuse to rant and rave about it's, uh, it it's movie number three on our acclaimed you yeah. know perfect it's movie. the the third the third film on the pod people to have a unanimous five star or a five pod rating we have a little golden goose shelf Yes. Little trophies of each one. Before we get into that, though, I'm going to do something that I honestly was not expecting to do for this film, and I'm going to take us into the Metacritic Corner. You freaking bricks! For this installment of Metacritic Corner, I'm going to do something a little special. I did find this review on Metacritic, so it's not technically out of character. But this is not a user review. This is a critic review. And this is a uh, digitized version of the New York Times review of The Thing from 1982, the year it came out. Uh, This is by Vincent Canby, uh, who I can only say that if he's still alive today, which I don't know if he is or not, he must be in a state of constant acid reflux, knowing that he wrote this review in the context of the reputation of this film over 30 years later. It's a bit of a long one, but we're going to Chapo Trap House style have a little bit of a reading corner. So here is Vincent Canby's 1982 review of The Thing for The New York Times. I will reiterate that for The New York Times. (laughs) Host of famous film reviewers like John (laughs) Podhoritz. He doesn't write for The Times. 
Okay. John Carpenter's The Thing is a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that is fun as neither one thing or the other. Sometimes it looks as if it aspired to be the quintessential moron movie of the 80s, a virtually storyless feature composed of lots of laboratory concocted. That's one word, laboratory concocted. Special effects with the actors used merely as props to be hacked, slashed, disemboweled, and decapitated, finally to be eaten and then regurgitated as, guess what, more laboratory-concocted special effects. There may be a metaphor in all this, but I doubt it. Mr. Carpenter has demonstrated that he can make good, comparatively plain, old-fashioned scary movies, Halloween, and effective suspense thrillers, Escape from New York. Maybe the only statement that I'll agree with in this. But he seems to lose his own head when he combines two or more genres, as he did in The Fog, and does again here. For the record, it should be immediately pointed out that this new film bears only a superficial resemblance to Howard Hawke's 1951 classic, The Thing, though both were inspired by the same source material, John W. Campbell Jr.'s story, Who Goes There? The Hawks film, written by Charles Lederer and directed by Christian Nyby, is something of a masterpiece of understatement. It's also funny... The new thing has been written with no great style by Bill Lancaster and directed by Mr. Carpenter without apparent energy or the ability to share his interests with us. What? Are you mad that the thing isn't funny? But it there are parts humorous parts. <laughs> I mean, there's appropriate comic relief at Times. You gotta be fucking kidding me, as they say in the, the movie th- The Thing. thing. <laughs> the setting is a small, self-contained American scientific base in Antarctica, and The Thing is a creature from outer space, frozen for a hundred thousand years in the South Polar Ice Cap, and accidentally thawed by some unfortunate Norwegian scientists. One of the film's major problems is that the creature has no identifiable shape of its own. Do you call that a problem? That it's almost like it's alien. It's it's simply a mass of bloody protoplasm that, as someone solemnly explains, imitates other forms of life. And thus, for much of the movie, walks around looking like ordinary people. Saying that like it's a criticism. In this respect, Mr. Carpenter's The Thing seems itself to be imitating other forms of movies, particularly Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You know, a movie that also had people walking around looking like people. (laughs) Kurt Russell, Richard Dysart, A. Wilfred Bramley. Bramley? Wilfred. (laughs) Wilfred Bramley. (laughs) T.K. Carter, Peter Maloney, David Clennon, and other worthy people appear on the screen, but there's not a single character to act... 
all that the performers are required to do is to react with shock and terror from time to time. Like all such movies that don't trust themselves to keep an audience interested by legitimate dramatic means, The Thing shows us too much of The Thing too soon so that it has no place to go. It plods in circles from one mock horror effect to the next. I'll refer you to what we were talking about like ten minutes ago. It's almost like he doesn't enjoy the the effect it's almost like he's never seen a film <laughs> it's entertaining only if one need if one's needs are met by such sights as those like a head walking around on spider-like legs autopsies on dogs and humans in which the innards explode to take on other not easily identifiable forms hand severings, immolations, worm-like tentacles that emerge from the mouth of a severed head, or two or more burned bodies fused together to look like spare ribs covered in barbecue sauce. (laughs) The thing which opens today at the Rivoli and other theaters is too phony looking to be disgusting. It qualifies only as instant junk. Man. Eat your fucking heart out, Vincent Canby. <laughs> All right? That is a that is the review from the day that this fucking film released in 1982. That just goes to show you the mindset of critics in that time. I could not disagree with that entire take more. Every single thing that Vincent can be listed as a negative of the of the thing is something that I consider a wild positive. Do you ever look back on reviews like this and think what movies today will be classics that know, get shit yeah, and you know re understood as you know, misappropriated classics. You know, I do think about that sometimes, and maybe it's my ego, but I like to think that I can spot those films when they come out, but who can say? Yeah. Maybe The Predator will someday. <laughs> maybe, maybe... You're right, because autism is the truest form of... Hey, dude, maybe 40 years from now, someone will have their own horror podcast and we'll be playing clips of us talking about The Predator and laughing at us about it. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Those I hope so fucking too. idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Those fucking idiots have a podcast. How stupid. It's 40 20... years from now? <laughs> it's 2058. Who'd podcast? Yeah, right? Oh my god. I bet Vincent Canby was thinking the same thing when he wrote this article. Fucking idiots. Anybody who likes this movie is fucking retard. Because it was the 80s and retard was probably a common slang term back then. Yeah. Alright, well, <laughs> that... <laughs> That brings us to the end of this special edition of Metacritic Corner. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. All right, now, uh, since it's our one-year anniversary, birthday, whatever, Ben, you've pulled some uh, some stats from uh, our 
year together reviewing horror films. Yeah, I got some interesting tidbits. Just take here. a little a little look back. First off, just a note for editing. John Podhoritz was writing reviews for the Weekly Standard, not the New York Times. <laughs> I told you he didn't <laughs> write for the Times. Um, but, okay, so now we have three golden geese, I guess you could say. I want a better term than golden geese, because fuck geese. Um, <laughs> yeah, fuck geese. How um, many geese do you think you can take in a fight? Um, seven. <laughs> seven that's, or eight. That's gone down a lot since our freshman year of yes. college. Uh, I, I've gotten more realistic with age. Um, so we've had three, uh, three perfect movies. We've had The Thing. Uh, obviously, we've had It Follows, another masterpiece. And we've had the Poughkeepsie tapes. We should qualify that uh, perfect in this instance is uh, unanimous five pod ratings from all of us. Yes. Uh, uh, we have, a, as you're going to get to, a couple of uh, five pod reviews that are uh, technically rounded up because these stats are coming from Letterboxd and Letterboxd only deals in half and full star reviews so i was also looking through to count how many five star reviews each of us have and from the look of it i have out of the total of now 86 movies we've covered i have given eight movies a five star rating you have given seven movies a five-star rating. Oh. So it's fairly close. It's a small percentage, but uh, I think we both have our, you know, kind of unique choices here. Were most of those the same films? Uh, some of them. Uh, a couple notable ones that were way off were uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, which I rated fairly well, I believe. I You rated it a 5 out of 5. I mean, obviously. Um, but I think I rated it a 3.5. Oh, um, that's not so, close at all. Yeah, I think most of the others were fairly close. One of us would rate it a 5, the other would rate it like 4.5. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems like that mostly through and through. I rated Nightmare on Elm Street 5, you rated it 4. But yeah, so top 5 movies overall. So we have The Thing, It Follows, and Poughkeepsie Tapes in the top. Our three, three Hall of, Hall of you Famers. Know, Hall of Famers, retired jerseys. Right below that, we have three movies that have gotten uh, two 5-star rated reviews and one 4.5. So we have Halloween... We have Dead Alive slash Brain Dead, whatever you want to call it. Um, and we have Get Out, which is all a solid fanta- yeah, all fantastic second films. tier classic. And then rounding us out at the bottom, the worst of the worst, <laughs> we have only had four unanimous half-star movies. Well, a couple of those were single-person reviews. Yes, and that kind of buffers the amount a little bit. But nonetheless, they are 
bad movies. <laughs> so we have fear.com.com. Of course. Yeah. Um, Megan is Missing. Yeah, that which one was mine. Also the same episode, episode Jesus two. Jesus fucking Christ. On episode two, we had two of our lowest rated films. Yeah. How insane is that? <laughs> uh, we had uh, Texas Chainsaw 3D. Uh, that was Soul Overview from Eugene. And then uh, The Slenderman. Which we did uh, several weeks ago. Yes. Another classic. Another hit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, something special right there. Something um, special. Yeah, in the bottom, we should give a special shout out to Friend Request as well. Also, the same episode as Fear.com. Unanimous oh one out of five. <laughs> That was a great episode, guys. You guys should go back and listen to that one. Lots of bad movies. Yeah, Jesus, fuck. What else? We did uh, Pulse on that one, which is probably one of our higher rated ones. Yeah, yeah. and then Unfriended. And then Unfriended, the which was one. which was middling. Right uh, in the middle, yep. Right in the middle. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Oh my God. Three of our worst rated films in a single episode. What were we doing? Thank God we stopped doing four or five movies in episode. <laughs> that was that shit was unsustainable. Can you imagine? Oh, we God. were doing that shit for a few weeks. So that's been a brief look back at our one full year in review, but the fun isn't over yet. Next week, we're doing part two of our Thing series, and we're going to be talking about uh, the aforementioned Thing from Another World from 1951, and the soft reboot slash prequel to John Carpenter's classic, also titled The Thing from 2011, which is a film that I'm unhappy to say that I've seen twice, and now I'm going to have to watch it a third time. Um, I have no expectations for either of these films, and I'm hoping to keep it that way until I see I have them. no expectations for The Thing from Another World. I... <sighs> I can't believe I'm gonna watch this 2011 movie again. <laughs> I really, really uh, did not want to. Honestly, I'm more excited to watch it so I can watch your reaction. Oh That's all I'm getting from watching this I again. I, I have a lot of questions for it that I'm sure will be answered by the time <sighs> we record next. Yeah, episode, I well, no, so. I'm 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 looking forward to your reaction because. If it frustrates you as much as it frustrates me, which I'm like 95% sure will be the case, I'll at least be entertained. I'm by... going to pose a question for myself for next episode. Okay. Because I'll answer it. Um, the question is, if this movie was released without the thing precursing it, it being a standalone movie with no context before it, would it A, stand on its own, and B, would it be as egregiously bad? Okay, that's actually a very interesting qualifier, and I'm curious to hear your answers. But if you want to hear those answers, you'll have to tune in to the next episode. If you like the show, and you've been with us for a year, or even if you haven't, please be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We're still looking for those. We're trying to get up in the numbers. Even if you think that it's not that big of a deal, just do that shit. 
it just takes like no fucking time at all. So please and thank you. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod if you want to uh, look at some of our stats and uh, see some of the things that we just talked about. Then check out our Letterboxed page. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D, no E, dot com slash podpeoplepod. And you can see a concise list of all the films we've reviewed on this show so far. 86 in a year. That's a pretty good number, I think. Uh, And they all have links to the corresponding episode. Uh, Yeah, check that shit out if you so choose. Uh, send us any questions or concerns, whatever, gmail.com or podpeoplepod at gmail.com. I forgot how email works. <laughs> uh, I've had a few drinks. Whatever. Um, question of the episode. What is the best, outside of the thing, what is the best Antarctic uh, set horror movie? I was trying to figure this out when we were watching the thing, and I couldn't think of any other. There are virtually no horror films, as far as I know. Maybe there's a whole subgenre that I'm. I will. You know, I will slightly extend that to uh, horror films set in cold, snowy, uh, remote places. But send us your answers on Twitter or through Gmail or whatever. You send us something good, maybe we'll read it on the show. Who knows? Um, But check that out. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of those who have been with us for the whole year. And hopefully this time next year we'll be back with another special uh, second birthday episode. Uh, Time will tell. But um, check in next week for part two of our uh, thing retrospective. Thank you so much. I can't say it enough. I'm Matisse Van Rossum. And I'm Ben Sheets. And until next time, check your blood. (laughs) Don't get AIDS. (laughs) 